Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore different perspectives on what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. As a quick reminder, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Hypermobility conditions may be complex. Please consult with the appropriate professionals before making any changes to your own treatment regimen. As always, feel free to email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics or guests. Today, our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Boris, a board-certified pediatric cardiologist and general pediatrician who has been practicing since 1997 and caring for patients with POTS since 2002. He has worked with patients who have multiple other diagnoses alongside their POTS, including joint hypermobility with or without Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, concussions, mast cell activation syndrome, Sjogren's syndrome, eosinophilic esophagitis, median acute acute ligament syndrome, and other conditions. Dr. Boris advocates a creative, multi-pronged approach to helping children get back to school, sports, and their lives. He has published research in acclaimed medical journals to help doctors better understand POTS so more physicians will be able to treat it and join research efforts to better understand this condition. In 2016, Dr. Boris was named Physician of the Year by Dysautonomia International, a leading organization seeking to improve the lives of people with autonomic nervous system, dis, nervous system disorders. He was recognized for his warm compassion and tireless commitment to his pediatric and young adult patients. Dr. Boris, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for inviting me to uh, talk with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, so although most of our fam- listeners are pretty familiar with POTS, uh, let's make sure we all start out on the same page. Can you give us a brief overview of what POTS is and how it's diagnosed? Yes. So POTS, of course, is short for the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It is a dysautonomia, meaning a severe malfunction of the autonomic nervous system, the part of the nervous system that controls heart rate, blood pressure, sweating, GI motility, pupillary size, all those things in your body that you don't normally have to think about um, for them to be able to function appropriately and normally. Um, we don't know what necessarily causes POTS, although we can say that uh, the patients have uh, about, probably over half of the patients um, have some sort of a trigger of sorts, either an infection, concussion, trauma, um, also um, maybe a growth spurt or onset of menses. Some patients um, don't necessarily have a trigger, but uh, in a, uh, in a long-term outcome study that we just completed, probably about 40% of the patients uh, sort of always had something going on since they were younger, either something from a GI standpoint, headaches, sleep issues, et cetera. At either rate, um, patients who have POTS have um, severe lightheadedness, tachycardia, especially with upright position, but they also have um, many symptoms in multiple other uh, body systems. So for example, from a neurologic standpoint, they they often have headaches, difficulty concentrating, um, uh, uh, severe fatigue, insomnia. From a gastroenterologic standpoint, they may have nausea, constipation, early satiety or feeling full early, abdominal pain, things like that. We also see um, 
severe joint pain, muscle pain, uh, and, and uh, exercise intolerance. All of these things together, whoops, all of these things together cause POTS to be very debilitating to uh, patients. And so uh, their ability to be able to perform their activities of daily living um, <clears throat> can be significantly impaired. The way we make the diagnosis is to uh, look at the combination and severity of symptoms being at least three months in duration, as well as an increase in the heart rate of at least uh, 30 beats per minute in adults and um, um, possibly 40 beats per minute, which I'm going to address in just a second, in uh, kids age 12 to 19 without a significant drop in blood pressure. Now, um, and, and that increase in heart rate um, is from laying down to standing up. So when we do the evaluation for, um, increase, uh, for looking for increased heart rate, <clears throat> there's a couple ways of doing it. One is to do what's called a tilt table test or a head up tilt table in which uh, a patient is placed on a table flat um, uh, facing up and the table has a footboard and attached to a bunch of monitors and observed for a little bit. And then the table is, is um, elevated or tilted up to about anywhere from 65 to 80 degrees. And then the patient is observed heart rate, blood pressure, etc. The other way is to do uh, a standing test, which has not necessarily been validated in the medical literature, but is, is very frequently used, in which the patient is supine for um, a period of time. And then after checking heart rate and blood pressure, having the patient stand up and um, <clears throat> um, checking heart rate and blood pressure in the first 10 minutes of uh, standing. And so historically, the diagnosis for younger patients of, of, uh, of POTS with a heart rate increase has been 40 beats per minute. And that was typically associated with a tilt table test. However, um, there have been a couple of studies, including one from Vanderbilt and one from Cleveland Clinic, that demonstrated that the increase in heart rate in a tilt table test is higher than that generated on a 10-minute standing test. And that, that has to do with the fact that um, the patient is being passively uh, brought upright in the tilt table versus actively standing. Also, um, I published a study um, several years ago that demonstrated that in patients who had a heart rate of 30 to 39 beats per minute increase on 10-minute stand versus 40 or more, there was no significant difference in the symptomatology uh, between those two groups of patients. Um, and that would suggest that, uh, a, that the 40 beat per minute threshold um, a, may be too high for younger patients, and B, really using heart rate at all as a diagnostic modality for POTS may not be appropriate. The problem is, is that we really don't have what we call a biomarker or a biological marker 
that um, uh, allows us to draw blood or, or do some or look at urine or something like that and say, oh, we found that marker. That's POTS. We, we just haven't gotten there yet. So how did you become interested in treating patients with POTS? So uh, kind of a long story. Um, the U.S. Air Force paid for my medical school education, and um, they also had me do my training through them. So I owed them uh, seven years as a pediatric cardiologist. So in um, 2002, uh, I was in my clinic, and I had a patient come to see me who had um, persistent lightheadedness, and I treated her um, like I usually do, and she just wasn't getting better. And then she had kind of all these other sort of symptoms that were really interfering with her life. I'm like, what is this? And um, I, I had heard of this POTS thing, but didn't really know a lot about it. And I looked in the medical literature and this name kept popping up by the name of Blair Grubb, which some of your listeners may have heard of. Um, he, is a, an adult, he is an adult cardiologist at the University of Toledo. And so uh, one day I just cold called him. It's like, hi, you don't know me, but um, <laughs> I have this patient. And uh, the first time we talked, we chatted for about two and a half hours. And um, he taught me a lot of stuff. Um, and we are still very good friends today. Uh, and um, I, like I said, I've, I've learned tons from him. Um, I hope I've been able to teach him a few things. And... Um, uh, I, I found that I was kind of good at helping these patients to feel better. When I left the Air Force, I was in private practice for three years in North Carolina and um, saw a few POTS patients and did pretty well with them. <clears throat> and then I left that practice and joined the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in 2007. Uh, when I got there, I told the nurse manager of my clinic uh, that, by the way, I know how to take care of POTS patients. And her response was, are you sure you want to tell me that? And what, what, wow. <laughs> what, what happened, I mean, she was just sort of kidding, but what, but what happened was a lot of my colleagues started referring patients, first the cardiology folks, and then the GI folks, and the neurology folks, and the uh, diagnostic center folks. And I found that these patients were way more complex than the POTS patients I had seen previously, way more complicated, way more debilitated. And so um, I did a lot of reading and a lot of talking to friends and a lot of just thinking about stuff and, and a lot of listening to the patients too. I, I learn a lot from my patients really. And um, just kind of was able to come up with various therapies and try various therapies and, and, um, um, many worked, some didn't, some worked sometimes, some were sort of serendipitous finds and, uh, was able, I, I found again, what, you know, that I was able to get patients back to school, um, some of them back to sports, so, you know, off to college. And I was like, all right, uh, not bad. This is fun. You know, it's, it's fun to me to be able to talk with a patient and family who has been through the the typical medical system where their symptoms are blown off, their symptoms are denied, especially if they're female, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, girls and women, as you, as you probably have experienced as mm -hmm. well, girls and women are 
much more uh, blown, have their symptoms much more blown off. And that has been um, uh, seen through throughout history, really. Mm-hmm. But it, it is just rewarding to be able to validate and reassure and demonstrate that there are things that can be done to help these patients kind of get back to their lives. Now, um, one of the things that's been disappointing to me uh, in the medical literature is there have been six kind of long-term outcome studies with POTS, um, three from the United States and three from uh, other countries. And they've all been really rosy. You know, they've, they've been saying, oh, the symptoms go away. These patients are fine. They'll do great. They can, it's not a problem. So I mentioned this long-term outcome study that we just completed. Uh, it had over 225 patients. Um, the mean duration of symptoms from onset of symptoms to the time that they took the uh, the survey was nine and a half years, probably one of the longest studies <clears throat> in the uh, out there. We haven't published it yet. I'm waiting for my co-authors to finish editing. But one of the things that we found um, was that in 99% of the patients, they still had some 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 symptoms in one way, shape, or form, as as late as last month. And I think it. I think we owe it to ourselves as the providers taking care of these patients, to be honest, with not only ourselves but with our patients, and say, look, you know, in 2022, we're kind of clueless. We we know how to help get your you know get your symptoms under better control, but we still haven't figured out a what POTS is and b how to make it go away. Yeah, and I commend you for leaning into the challenge um, of this, and you know, away from the tendency, like you remarked upon, for people to say, "Oh, are you are you sure you want to say you're working with this?" So, um, you're you're a very proud POTS, um, you know, practitioner, and so that's that's really impressive. And thank you for pointing out the differences and the disparities as well. It's a really important point to make um, that a lot of people's experience in the healthcare system um, is is different. Um, and so it's it's great that you recognize that. It's just disappointing. I, I think you know you, you you expect when when a physician, male or female, um, signs up, quote unquote, to do medicine, that they're here to help people and they're here to listen to people and they're here to make things better, we would hope, for these people, for their patients. And I I just think that, um, you know, doctors are human too and nurse practitioners and physician assistants, you know, all these folks, we're human too. And so we as humans are designed to look for patterns, okay? And if things don't fit the patterns that we're used to, uh, they don't fit the patterns that we're expecting, they don't fit into the box, we just dismiss it. It can't be true. It can't be real. You're making it up. It's psychiatric. It's, you know, your parents are doing this to you, you know, all this other garbage. And it ends up being um, problematic. And again, this is this has been repeated multiple times through through decades and decades of, of medicine. So this, this is nothing new. 
Absolutely. Um, it is sort of systemic and, and historical. Um, I, I immediately was reminded of the whole um, thinking behind hysteria, the idea that a woman's uterus moved around her body and caused oh, problems, yeah. um, and how that sort of legacy in that thinking is still ingrained in um, much, as I understand it, of um, the approach to um, women's mental and physical health issues. Um, and, and also thinking of, um, uh, there's this documentary, I think it's in the documentary Unrest um, from Jen Brea. I think there's some discussion of how patients with a certain condition, I can never remember if it's multiple sclerosis or cystic fibrosis. I think it was multiple sclerosis, but patients with this very disabling condition were thought to be malingerers and fakers or just weak or, you know, all kinds of ableist kind of degrading labels. And then I think it was when the CT scan, but when one of the scans was invented and people could finally see with their, you know, bare eyes, the, the damage and what these people were dealing with, it was like, you know, a sea change. Oh, these people aren't just, um, you know, sort of making this stuff up or, or whatever. This is a very real thing. It needs to be treated as such. And then, um, you know, some, it, some attitudes have changed in regards to that, but it is incredibly disappointing, but, but it's heartening to hear that there are doctors out there like you who, who are aware of it and, um, yeah, are, are doing what you can to address it. Yeah. Try to, one day at a time. Um, by the, by the way, that was probably multiple sclerosis. Um, yes, I think so. I think so. That that's what I always think, but for some reason, those two are like stored next to each other in my yeah, right. okay. and I, it's just, it's so hot and humid here i'm definitely experiencing the the pots um f- uh interesting uh brain fog myself so that's oh a little so, um on the so, nose so, for our talk but so, so definitely get yourself a cooling vest yes i i have my gatorade here i'm now finally mm-hmm. hydrating so um, no, no 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 not not just the hydration a cooling vest yes i should get one that's a very it's mm-hmm. a good idea they're great they're great Great tip and great to slip that in. <laughs> um, now let's talk a little bit about treatment. Um, and and thanks for mentioning the cooling vest. Um, what are other standard treatments for POTS and what has your experience been like when using these treatments? Yeah. So the, the goal in my mind of treatment of therapy for patients with POTS is a couplefold. One is to allow them to be able to perform their activities of daily living. And two is to be able to help them to be able to exercise um, consistently and progressively because, and not everybody, but, but a lot of patients have been able to demonstrate improved suppression uh, or control of their symptoms if they're able to exercise on a routine basis. And so that's kind of what I'm shooting for um, with the understanding that, you know, what works for one patient doesn't work for another. And, and I, think what, I think what also the other corollary to that is that if, um, if things are not working and the patient remains very symptomatic, then do I need to go back to the drawing board and make sure that I haven't missed some other comorbid situation with the patient or comorbid diagnosis. There are 
um, a group of both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic interventions for patients. Foundational from a non-pharmacologic standpoint is increasing the amount of fluid in the system. So having lots of fluid and lots of salt. Uh, typically we talk about 80 to 120 ounces of fluid, water, juice, milk, and, um, lots of salt, probably eight to 10 grams of sodium chloride a day. Uh, there was an interesting study that came out of the University of Calgary last year that suggested that as much as 17 grams of sodium chloride, which is a huge amount of salt, um, made a, made a big difference as compared to uh, low salt intake, but you know, eight to 10 grams of salt a day is the equivalent of about two teaspoons of salt. And that's a lot, right? Um, and there's different ways of getting that salt. Um, high sodium foods, um, bouillon, canned soup, soy sauce, that kind of thing, as well as uh, salt supplements that are, uh, that are out there. One of the things that can help uh, patients um, uh, is elevating the head of the bed. Um, uh, on a cinder block, so the the bed frame, not extra pillows, not the mattress, but actually having the entire bed frame up about six to eight inches. Uh, the thought there is that it uh, causes the kidneys to hold on to salt and water um, while you're asleep, and so you're not peeing it out in the morning, so uh, you're not quite so uh, dehydrated in the morning. Um, ensuring that the patients have good sleep hygiene. We know that um, so many patients, both children and adults, um, are uh, are very connected to their electronics, right? And so we want to uh, make sure that uh, the uh, um, the lights are turned down about an hour before bed. Get rid of all the electronica, and uh, do something relaxing to get ready for bed. Um, making sure there's no night lights and TVs going on, and that kind of making sure the room is dark and making sure the room is cool. Um, I mentioned cooling vests before. The, the kind of cooling vest that I like is a vest called an evaporative cooling vest, where the, the vest um, is this really interesting material where you dunk the vest in water, wring it out, and then you put it on over your clothes. You don't get wet, but it evaporates off you and keeps you cool. And to recharge it, you just dump more water on it, right? Um, is there another, a brand you recommend for those evaporate or, or a place to look for them? I mean, you can find them on the internet. I mean, I think if you just do a a, a search for uh, evaporative cooling vest, they're they're out there. Okay. Yeah. And then another thing that um, uh, I've actually changed my thoughts on recently is the use of compression garments. Historically, both I as well as my colleagues, you know, in, in the field and in the medical literature, would always talk about using or wearing compression stockings, waist to toe, 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury while awake, right? Because patients pool their blood a lot in their legs and feet. And so what we're trying to do is force that blood back into the core circulation. However, um, there has been some really interesting research in the past that demonstrates that patients with POTS also pool their blood in what's called the splanchnic circulation. So the blood vessels that feed the GI tract. And uh, there was a, a great study that came out of uh, Calgary last year where uh, they demonstrated that if you compared um, no compression, the equivalent of compression stockings, an abdominal binder, or um, a combination of those two, the combination worked the best, but not far behind was just wearing an abdominal binder. And so I've actually 
switched my thinking and my recommendations to using an abdominal binder instead of compression stockings. It's easier to get on. My patients with heat intolerance, uh, you know, don't have nearly as much of a problem with it because um, the the compression stockings can really make you pretty warm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and ostensibly from a research standpoint, uh, the data suggests that you actually get more bang for your buck using uh, using the uh, the abdominal binder. That's absolutely fascinating. And I've thought about this for a while because um, I, I'm aware that for a quite a long period of history, um, women wore corsets. And mm-hmm. there was a sort of fashion revolution in approximately, I think, the 1920s. Um, you know, the famous flapper style of the sort of the loose clothing and the getting rid mm-hmm. of this tight corset. And... I, obviously, corsets had their issues, especially in the way they were used. There was a lot of, I, I was going to say user error, but not to blame the women of those times. They were trying to achieve, you know, very unrealistic standards. Right. Right. Um, but there was, you know, a lot of issues with sort of like compressing in the ribs from over tightening the corsets. Sure. But in my understanding, women of all walks of life, all different economic social statuses did wear corsets. And in just thinking of how hard it is to hold up, you know, my own body, um, especially on hot days, but really all the time, I, you know, I started to think, um, did we give up on the corset a little too soon? Was that providing us a little bit of exoskeleton um, that's really useful? And so I've shopped around and tried to find one that suits me or, or sort of an equivalent. Um, but unfortunately, so many of the products out there today are made with really synthetic polyester fabrics. And those fabrics irritate my skin and just cause incredible rashes. And so it, it's tough, um, but I'm kind of ever on the lookout for, um, for, for something in that category. But, it, but it's an interesting, that's some very interesting research. And, and I thank you for raising it. That's, that's actually a, a cool point. I hadn't really thought about that concept. You know, it, 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 um, the concept of POTS has been around since um, we think uh, was at least talked about in the medical literature as early as 1871, when a uh, a uh, physician, actually from Philadelphia, um, named Jacob DeCosta, who was a Civil War surgeon, described. Oops, I'm sorry. Um, described um, this battlefield condition that he would see in Civil War soldiers, where they would get dysentery. Right, so it's a, a uh, a um, infectious um, gastroenteritis, infectious diarrhea. And after they had this infectious event, they would be severely lightheaded. They would be severely tachycardic. They would be weak. They would be fatigued. They were worthless as soldiers. They couldn't get stuff done, blah, blah, blah. And so, I mean, you, you, you just, you, you read the description like, OMG, it's POTS, right? Back in 1871. So, mm-hmm. you know, to your point of, of of wearing corsets and that kind of deal back in the t- back in the day, <laughs> um, it does make you wonder: was that an unrecognized um, an unrecognized potential treatment for patients who who may have actually had a condition that was probably POTS, um, you know, um, 150 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that 
the reminder of that, that's fascinating. And the reminder of the role of infection in POTS is, is really important um, because we're starting to see a little bit of, I, th- I think, some exploration of long COVID, which has a lot of overlap in, in at least some of the presentations of it with POTS. And to, to me, this idea of the infection spurring things on has been interesting for a long time. Um, and there's a certain sort of sense to it that um, it, it at least seems plausible to me. Again, I, I don't have a scientific background, um, but I've read quite a bit on POTS EDS related matters. And it seems at least plausible that some viruses can do some long lasting damage to tissue or nerves or both. And that um, it, it may take a while for the body to readjust to that. Um, and so it, it's so interesting, you know, the medical history, like you said, you can look back at these accounts and, and see these things over time. Um, I mentioned this all the time, but Hippocrates described hypermobility um, in looking at the Scythians in, I think it was 400 BC. And so these concepts are so old, and yet it's remarkable um, how few physicians in my experience and in the experience of many patients that I've talked to and and many physicians I've talked to over the years, um, that there still is just a really profound lack of awareness of what it is. And and even I think I've heard that some doctors don't believe in POTS. um, And I I don't even, have you heard that before? Totally. Totally. Yeah, Yeah, POTS doesn't exist. It's just made up in your mind. Uh, I, I I would so so a couple things. Um, I want to get back to answering your previous question about uh, therapeutic yeah. approaches to uh, to pods, but I want to jump forward to the whole infection thing that you just brought up. Okay. Um, in our long term outcome study, um, as many as forty five percent of our patients uh, had who had a trigger had an infection as their trigger. Okay. And there are many other studies out there that have suggested that as many as anywhere 50 to 60, 70% of patients um, who have POTS have it triggered by an infection. And I think, um, I mean, yes, you can sort of potentially consider the quote unquote damage by the virus, but I think the, the probably the more reasonable way to think about it or a more consistent way to think about it would be that it's an autoimmune response, mm. right? So you have a viral infection, and, you, and for some reason, there is a response by your immune system that looks at this virus, and potentially there's um, there is uh, a, a genetic marker for this as well. In other words, it's what we call a two-hit hypothesis, meaning you are genetically set up to do this and then you get the viral hit, right? So that's sort of the two hits. And you get this viral infection and your immune system is off to the races. It sees this virus, it recognizes a protein within the virus that might be, cons- that might be similar to some virus, in, to some protein in your system, and then um, uh, starts making, you know, uh, these auto antibodies. There has been good research to show that there are certain auto antibodies against autonomic nervous system receptors and other similar receptors that are elevated in the body, as well as increased inflammatory mediators. Now, have we proven 
that POTS is an autoimmune disorder? No way. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, a lot of um, sort. Of, we we have a lot of data that are suggestive, but we have not gotten there yet. So I think you know the the, the research will will still uh, continue to uh, to move forward, and um, we'll, we'll probably get there. I think we have to keep in mind that at this point, the way we understand POTS, POTS very well may be um, kind of a collection of different disorders where sort of all roads lead to POTS kind of thing. And um, some might be autoimmune, some might be due to something else, you know, hard to say. I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind with uh, with the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 is this virus behaves in many bizarre ways that we just hadn't been used to before. One of the things that this virus does that that we are not aware that the other viruses do um, is it causes these microclots, microthrombi, and these clots occur all over the place, in the lungs, in the heart, in the kidneys, in the brain, in the liver. And so that's something that, that to our knowledge, at least, we have not seen in other kinds of patients with POTS. So I think we need to be careful um, in characterizing long COVID, uh, or at least the POTS associated with long COVID as being, oh, it's just a post-viral, you know, it's a, it's, it's a post-viral POTS like everything else. We just have to be, uh, we just have to be careful with that. That's a really um, important distinction. And thank you for making that um, because that, that is a good point. And while I agree, it, it appears to me that there seems like there's a lot of different roads to POTS, as you say. Um, it, it is important to um, try to tease out as much as possible what, you know, when someone has been diagnosed as POTS, if you can find their specific path and to be cognizant that even if symptoms can look similar, the underlying path to those symptoms and so the underlying issues could be very very different and then required different treatments in in some respects at least and and you know having said all that um conversely the therapies may be similar or identical right which leads us back to our prior question about um about treatments so we talked about non-pharmacologic therapies um the last one of course being uh being exercise and um, I, uh, for, for those folks that know me, I, there's an exercise protocol that I use that I actually modified uh, a version of the Levine protocol, which people have probably heard of as well, which is an exercise protocol in uh, where patients are doing leg and core strengthening as well as cardio, but they start out <clears throat> doing it minimally and they start out doing it supine or recumbent, meaning not upright, and uh, they progress over time to uh, um, uh, doing more exercise and then eventually uh, transitioning to upright exercise as well. And Uh, for those patients, um, it's a really important point on exercise, and I've heard so many people benefit from it. And I've also heard a lot of people who um, get worse from exercises and or experience pretty extreme mast cell flares when trying to do even simple exercises. And so... I don't want to jump ahead. I know you're still running through the, the treatment list, but have you have you worked with patients that have struggled to, um, you know, even meet these kind of basic exercise protocols totally. and struggled with mast cell issues? And totally. and then is it 
in that um, regard, do you try to work on the mast cell stuff first or, you know, like, like for me, pool exercise is great. Um, but I have strong reactions to chlorine and live in Wisconsin. So it's hard to find, um, mm. you know, a good, a good pool, but, and I know that doesn't work for everyone and, and yeah. exercise is so controversial in this field because some people have their practice, whatever it is that they are devoted to and a lot of other people have tried a lot of things and, and are feeling really despondent that they can't find that thing that works for their body. So I guess that was just a lot of editorializing, but do you have <laughs> comments on that whole phenomenon? Well, for starters, it sounds like you need a good salt pool as opposed to <laughs> yes. A pool. Yes. And there is a great one, but in here that's open, I think three months out of the year. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to find a, one that's open longer. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I've absolutely had patients who don't tolerate exercise, even even small amounts of exercise. And so there's there's several ways of um, of dealing with it. Um, as you suggest, it, it does mean looking for some of the comorbid um, or co-occurring uh, medical conditions that can happen with this. Right. So I've had some patients who have, for example, craniocervical instability where they do recumbent exercise and they flex their neck forward and their symptoms get worse, mm-hmm. but so they can't tolerate it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as you're suggesting, um, you know, MCAS can be flared with, with exercise too. So sure. You have to go ahead and a make the diagnosis and B get appropriate therapy to get those things under control. Truth be told, I've had some patients, you know, who, they do okay overall, but exercise really makes them feel hypotensive. And so one of the things that I would do is um, I would give them a dose of a medication called Midodrin, uh about 30 minutes prior to exercise. Midodrin is a medication that is what's called a peripheral vasoconstrictor, which means it causes the blood vessels <clears throat> in the edge of the body to squeeze and help to sort of support blood pressure better. It only lasts for four hours, right? So, so you know, it's on and then it's off. So it's uh, a really helpful medication uh, in those patients who have specifically exercise-associated hypotension because you don't need to be, and if you're otherwise doing well for the rest of your day, you don't necessarily need to have it on board. Um, there, there are lots of different medications. I've actually published a couple of articles on the use of various medications. My, in, in the therapy for POTS, my approach is a symptom-based therapy. And, um, and so I try to treat, uh, you know, lightheadedness. I try you know, um, headache, um, nausea, insomnia, <clears throat> chronic pain, GI dysmotility, fatigue, and brain fog. Um, I mean, those, are, those are the topics that I've published on uh, with medication outcomes. But there's so many other uh, uh, therapies. I mean, it's too, too numerous. That, that, that's, a whole, that's a whole talk on, unto itself. And, and I think that's a good thing, right? You know, you, you, my, my goal in, in, in part in talking to the patients is to be able to give them options. And so it's nice to be able to have multiple options that we can fall back on and say, this therapy, this medication doesn't necessarily work. Let's try something else. But I think you need to be creative um, and, and try to think outside the box, you know, use, use therapies 
that might be able that might be uh, able to be repurposed. Um, for example, the therapies that I use for fatigue and brain fog are the therapies that are used for patients who have attention deficit uh, hyperactivity disorder. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, uh, there has been some interesting research in the use of um, a group of medications called the beta blockers, specifically propranolol in the therapy for POTS. Um, um, in higher doses, propranolol would slow the heart rate down and also drop the blood pressure, something you don't want to do in patients with POTS. But in lower doses, it slows the heart rate down enough that it allows for longer filling time of the heart and therefore greater cardiac output of blood that can get to the body. And that in a number of patients has been demonstrated to reduce their symptoms. Pretty cool. Oh, and by the way, um, for patients who have anxiety, um, using a beta blocker can also help because patients with anxiety sometimes are worsened when they feel that inner sense of their heart rate taken off on them. This acts um, as a break for that and, and doesn't necessarily allow the heart rate to take off on them. So that can sort of help with kind of the, uh, the comorbid anxiety too. So there's, there's a lot of creativity um, that can be brought to bear, I think, in the use of these medications uh, for, for patients. Definitely. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned that your approach is to think outside the box and have options for patients um, to, to decide and to work through what works for them, because that sort of demonstrates to me um, that you're cognizant of how much variance, and, and you've made that clear up until this point, even talking about the differences between like the long COVID type of pot symptoms and, and what we've seen previously. Um, and, and I think that's a really important perspective to have to empower patients, um, to be able to, you know, try things that, um, you know, may work for them and, and to know there's a, there's a lot of things out there that can be tried and and can, um, give some degree of, of benefit, but it is an incredibly difficult balance and, uh, it's, it's tough. And so, um, I commend you for, for taking on these challenges, um, and especially, you know, your focus on children. I know that children can have their own very unique challenges, um, you know, when it comes to treatment. Um, you know, not, not that adults don't. There certainly are lots of pro- um, not, not problems, but challenges um, for adults as well. But what do you see as the biggest obstacles to treating children who have POTS? Hmm. Um, I think, uh, I think when it comes to treating kids, one of the one of the issues, there, there's sort of two issues, right? One is um, the fact that they're going through adolescence, they're going through school, they're figuring out who they are. Forget POTS, just going through adolescence and going through middle school and high school is a stressful enough experience and, and learning about your body, learning about the changes, learning about who you are as a person, learning to, you know, how do you react in various situations? Um, uh, you know, giving, giving it, giving it try, taking a risk, that kind of stuff, you know, all those things are hard enough. Now let's put pots on top of that. Right. And, and it makes it really, really difficult. And of course, what makes it even harder and heartbreaking is that um, POTS 
can often take these kids out of school, away from their friends, or their friends, you know, abandon them, right? Um, because they can't keep up. And um, it's, you know, the, their, their friends look at them and they're like, you look normal, what's the problem? You know, so it's very hard for, for them to understand. So that can be very depressing. It can cause a lot of anxiety and it can cause a lot of other issues like that. I think the, the other <clears throat> difficulty that can occasionally occur, um, but I enjoy really, is the concept that there are parents involved. Um, you know, the parents have had to be um, mama and papa bear <laughs> uh, for their kids, um, especially since their symptoms have been blown off by a lot of other providers. Uh, there was a uh, there was a study that I refer to often um, called the Big Pot Survey. Uh, the paper was called The Face of Postural Tachycardia Syndrome. <clears throat> and one of the things that it, they talked about was half of patients had seen at least seven or more providers before getting their diagnosis of POTS, and a quarter of them had seen at least 10 or more, right? So, so the parents have had to be uber advocates and, and become very distrustful of the medical system appropriately and understandably. But then what happens is, um, you know, you get a diagnosis and the parents are like, okay, well, why isn't my kid back to being normal like now, like yesterday? And so it's, you know, to me, it's a challenge, which I accept, of course, to help the parents become part of the treatment team um, to help make that light bulb go on over their head and say, oh, okay, I get it. And, and to help manage expectations. You know, um, the, the, it, is, it is the classic marathon, not sprint issue with uh, the treatment of POTS. Um, I just saw a patient this afternoon who is a little bit older, so she, she does not have her parents involved. But she's, you know, she's, we, we've gone through multiple therapeutic attempts and, and um, some stuff has worked, but a lot of stuff hasn't. And, and you, you try to keep, you know, you, you, you try to keep being understanding and say, look, I know it's hard. And, and I wish I could sit there and either wave a magic wand and say, bing, you're fixed, or be able to at least predict which therapies are going to work for you. And I, I just can't. But the good news is we still have options and there are still, there's still a lot of hope out there um, that we can get stuff under control. Um, that, that's sort of straight away from your, <laughs> from your question, but. No, but, but it's I a great point and thank you for making it. Yeah. Because there, there are, there are a lot of patients that get better with treatment and there are some who are really stuck. And, and I think it, it takes a lot of um, courage to be able to, to say when one doesn't know something, but I think mm -hmm. that is really important, especially in this space where the, the research is um, very kind of sparse and, and there really isn't even a unified theory of, of what these different paths to POTS are, let alone the best treatments, let alone what's the trajectory going to look like. So I think, you know, having that compassionate approach and, and just continuing to move forward, um, but still being realistic is really important. Yeah. I, I, and getting back to, to your point, I mean, 
I think it's important that a lot of people realize that one size does not fit all. I mean, they, these, these patients are not cookie cutter. Um, and so my approach has always been very personalized. You know, what are your three worst, three or fewer worst symptoms? And let's go after those. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, because otherwise, if I just sort of, you know, okay, you're a POTS patient, we're going to do A, B, and C, have a nice day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't do that um, because you're going to miss things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to potentially delay therapies that might be beneficial for the patient too. Absolutely. Um, so now let's talk about some of the comorbidities. We've already kind of hit on them um, a little bit. Um, so the comorbidities and potential causes or exacerbators of POTS. Um, first, what has been your experience with mast cell activation and POTS? Do you see a significant overlap between these two conditions? Do you see distinctions or I guess what are your observations? Yeah, so so I have to, I have to freely admit that um, when so I, I was at uh, I was at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia from 2007 to 2019 and I have to say that in the mid 2010s um, I had never even heard of MCAS, much less knew what it was, right? And so um, I had a patient, for for example, for whom I kept trying this, that, and the other thing, and nothing was working. And uh, she went off and, and found another doctor and, and got a diagnosis of MCAS. I'm like, huh, what's that? And so as time has gone on, uh, you know, I've recognized more and more that the, it, it's one of those things where if you don't ask, you won't find it. So you got to ask. And back, you know, some, some years ago, I sort of thumbnail estimated that probably about 15% of my patients had, with POTS had MCAS also. Um, with my long-term outcomes study, uh, I actually have more discrete data that suggests really about 21% of patients have MCAS. So it is totally a part of my uh, initial and, and and certainly some of the follow-up questions uh, when I see patients in follow-up as well, screening for uh, for uh, symptoms of MCAS. Um, certainly, MCAS can cause a lot of very similar symptoms to uh, to POTS, and if you don't uh, manage these underlying conditions, you're never going to get the POTS better either. So, uh, so I've, I've taken to uh, learning how to manage MCAS as well. And to that end, um, do you have insights from addressing the MCAS um, side of things? Um, I guess anything that seems like it's been particularly helpful or particularly not helpful in that mm-hmm. regard? Um. I mean, I'm not an allergist immunologist, uh, so that that makes it already makes me already handicapped in a way. Um, you know, I, I always start with entry level therapy, uh, high dose of uh, antihistamines, both the H1 and the H2 blockers, and then you know try various therapy, try add on therapies as appropriate. Um, just like allergies, and by the way. To be clear, MCAS is not an allergy. It is not an allergic reaction. It is different. It is an immunologic reaction, but not allergic. Um, however, and similar what's to the allergies, there. I guess so. Yeah, if you could break that down a little bit for us, because I think there's a lot of confusion about that. Yeah. So, an allergic reaction um, officially includes IgE or immunoglobulin E, 
okay? Whereas the mast cells um, are a different part of the immune system that um, release a bunch of, a a lot of different chemical mediators that call in the immune system to go uh, fight um, uh, specific foreign or, or, or various foreign proteins. And what's happening is in, in mast cell activation, um, the, the mast cells are, for whatever reason, more sensitive, um, uh, more likely to release these chemical mediators, but it does not specifically include IgE. So that's and, really important. And sorry to interrupt you, but I just yeah. wanted to ask because um, I've heard a lot of discussion of Zolaire um, for mast cell. And my understanding is that Zoller's mechanism of action is binding to the, binding the, I, I'm reading from um, an FDA.gov site here, um, yep. binding of IgE to the high affinity IgE receptor on the surface of mast cells. So if there's not an IgE component, I guess I, I'm confused about the role of Zoller when it comes to mast cell. Uh huh. Oh, anyway, <laughs> sorry, that uh, yeah. wasn't a question. I was more of a no. I don't, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm 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 being facetious. <laughs> I, I think I think I think there's probably a lot we we still don't understand, and then and, and that and that that we includes me. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm I, I still continue to learn. Um, but I think I think you know, does it does it mean that IGE can't be involved? No. Does it mean that it's a primary IgE reaction? No, that part I think I think has been has been ascertained. Okay, but um, just like allergic reactions, the number one method of dealing with MCAS is avoidance, mm. right? So avoiding uh, any triggers that um, can be ascertained. By the patient or family to say, oh, that's a trigger. You know that that makes you worse. We should, you know, so we should try to avoid that. And that can be anything. That can be that can be certain smells. That can be certain foods. That can be certain chemicals. That can be mold. That can be all kind of stuff. Um, you know, uh, uh, a number of patients have um, MCAS reactions to quote unquote inactive ingredients in medications. You know, we think that the, the various filler medications and preservatives and medications are fairly inert. And the only active ingredient is the, is the actual chemical that's, that's, uh, in there. But from an MCAS patient standpoint, those, uh, inactive ingredients can be as much, cause as much activity, if you will, uh, just not in a good way. So learning what those um, triggers are, learning what uh, is 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 uh, very important to learn to avoid. I'm so glad you raised that point about are they called excipients, the the fillers that are put into medications? Because that's correct. Like a lot of the medications that we've even talked about today, I mean, I've had adverse reactions to all kind of stuff that is you know seen as regular, relatively safe. And then I started wondering and digging deeper and reading the ingredient list to see if there was something else in there. And I, I think I, now I, I need to look back, but I think I've seen that a lot of medications still use talc as a filler, which um, I find really confusing because um, it seems yeah. like there have been issues yeah. with that. But it seems like there's a lot of fillers that are at least potentially irritating to people that are highly sensitive. So I would say talc is probably less likely. Um, the things that that 
typically cause issues are things like polyethylene glycol, um, mm-hmm. uh, colorings, various dyes, right? Um, and, and stuff like that. There is a website that's put out, I think by the Food and Drug Administration called Daily Med, D-A-I-L-Y-M-E-D. It's a great website that you can, that you, if you have the specific, what's called the NDC, N is in November, D is in Delta, C is in Charlie, um, NDC number for your, um, uh, for your prescription. Um, so it, it's basically the, essentially the make and the model, if you were, if you will, um, you can put that in and you can get a list of both the active and the inactive ingredients. And if you're taking a bunch of different medications or have taken a bunch of different medications and you think that specific ones have activated your mast cells, you can go look at this list, write down the various inactive ingredients, and then see if there's, uh, if there's consistencies across, uh, across these and, and, and look to uh, try to um, eliminate those. And the cool thing is that on this Daily Med website, you can put in a search for X active ingredient, and then you want to say, I want to avoid Y inactive ingredients. And it'll give you a list of um, manufacturers um, that you can use. That's a great tip. Thanks for sharing. Had you heard that. of this? Had you heard no, of this website? Before? I had not heard of this. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. So that that's a great um, tool to be able to help break things down. But it's also just so unfortunate that we as patients have so much homework when it comes to do with all of this. It's just, it's really tough. But but that is a great resource to know about for sure. Um, so I've also heard a lot recently about MALS, and I understand that uh, M-A-L-S, and I understand that some suspect a connection there with POTS as well. Can you first tell us a little bit about what MALS is and whether it may be related to POTS in some way? Yeah. So um, MALS is short for the medi- for median arcuate ligament syndrome. So the median arcuate ligament is um, a part of the diaphragm that stretches across the abdomen. And there's really two hemidiaphragms, right? And so it's, it stretches across the diaphragm and kind of crosses over in the midline um, over the abdominal portion of the aorta, the main artery that takes blood from the left side of the heart out to the body. And it crosses over the aorta at a point called the celiac artery. And at the celi- and, and in median arcuate ligament syndrome, what's happening is, uh, or what's thought to happen is there's either scar tissue or just a really narrow angle of the median arcuate ligament. And so it compresses the celiac artery. But not only does it compress the celiac artery, but there is an autonomic ganglion there, uh, sort of like an autonomic way station, if you will, called the celiac ganglion. And that gets compressed and rubbed against and that kind of thing too. Now, um, what is felt to happen is that it causes... um, uh, it causes um, potentially some autonomic symptoms. Certainly, I've seen, in, in, at least in my experience, um, I, I've seen a lot of patients with abdominal symptoms, uh, abdominal pain, nausea, um, and uh, that kind of deal, who have, uh, who, who, that's persistent, that doesn't really respond to therapy, that ha- end up having mouths. 
um, historically, the therapy for that was doing surgery to do a mal's release. In other words, doing surgery to kind of cut out that portion of the ligament that's overlaying the celiac artery. Um, and there was some research from the University of Chicago some years ago that suggested they had about a 50% success rate. But um, there are some folks who have taken to not only doing a mal's or median arcuate ligament resection, but also resecting part or all of the celiac ganglion. Um, and, so, and reportedly uh, having improved results. Now, what does improved results mean? Well, less abdominal pain, less nausea, and maybe some of the less of the GI symptoms per se. I haven't, and again, in my experience, that doesn't necessarily mean that other people don't have other experiences, but in my experience, I've not seen POTS go away per se when a mouse release has been performed. But I've certainly seen patients have significantly improved uh, abdominal symptoms from that standpoint. Very interesting. Um, always so many new angles to come out of um, all of these issues related to hypermobility. It feels like the more you know, the more doors there are and possibilities, and oh, it's a lot. <laughs> Otherwise known as the more you know, the more we realize we don't know. Yes, exactly. A very mm -hmm. interesting phenomenon, uh, to be sure. Um, so now let's talk a little bit. Let's go back to, um, we already touched on it, but neck instability, like craniocervical instability, CCI, mm -hmm. and atlantoaxial instability, AAI, mm -hmm. and POTS. What are your observations when it comes to the neck instability, particularly like the cervical spine and POTS? So... Um, and of course, this is very germane because uh, we probably tend to see this more so in patients who have connective tissue disorders, um, joint hypermobility syndromes, et cetera. But um, the cranium, the skull, sits on top of the neck or the cervical spine. And um, if for whatever reason there has been trauma or the, or the connective tissues are just loose, the head, the cranium, can either sit lower down or, um, or flex or extend or rotate in such a way um, as, as to be abnormal and to potentially cause either obstruction of um, cerebrospinal fluid outflow from the brain or to specifically impinge upon the spinal cord or the midbrain. And I've had patients um, have, um, you know, headaches. Uh, I've had, I actually have a patient whom I saw yesterday who uh, has a history of head trauma and she has hypermobile EDS. Um, and she probably has CCI as well. When she looks down, you know, so when she flexes her neck, um, she gets a worse headache and uh, her vision goes, you know, she, she gets convergence insufficiency. She can't control her eyes as well. So uh, I, had, I had another patient who uh, would wear a cervical collar and her POTS symptoms really went away. And then when she would take her cervical collar off and her head would sort of settle back onto her neck, I guess, uh, 
she would have worsening lightheadedness, worsening headache, etc. So, you know, I think CCI uh, and AAI and these in these various um, uh, instability disorders are definitely uh, a concern and need to be thought about. Uh, in patients, especially if there's a history of joint hypermobility or connective tissue disorder, and also I think in in a uh, uh, if there's been a history of head trauma, um, this same patient, by the way, who who I saw yesterday, who I believe has CCI, um, had head trauma such that she also had a CSF leak or a cerebrospinal fluid leak, um, and uh, had um, uh, had. Uh, fractures and internal fractures in her skull. So, you know, these are all things that can accompany, um, uh, can accompany patients. One thing I wanted to bring up, by the way, while we're on the topic of head trauma is um, I think there, in, in, in my series, probably about 20 to 30% of patients have had as a trigger, a concussion or a bony fracture or a non-concussion trauma or surgery that as a trigger for their POTS. But for the ones who've had a concussion, you know, the thought is, well, you know, you, you recover from your concussion and yeah, you've got POTS, but, but uh, you know, your concussion stuff has resolved because that was so long ago. What people don't recognize, but, but I've actually been uh, making sure that I ask my patients who've had head trauma, especially, is when we talk about dizziness. Dizziness is an umbrella term that encompasses several things. It encompasses lightheadedness, that feeling like you're going to pass out, but it also encompasses vertigo such that you're, if you're sitting still and things are moving around you. When you have a concussion, you can have uh, a couple of residual effects, one being vestibular dysfunction. So one of the three uh, systems in your body that helps you maintain your balance. And, um, so you can have residual vestibular dysfunction. You can also have this convergence insufficiency, this um, uh, inability to bring your eyes to work together, especially in the near field. And um, so I have found that in my patients who have POTS, um, the post-concussion syndrome type residual effects need to also be addressed. Otherwise you're, not, you're, otherwise, you're not going to get the POTS symptoms better. That's a really important point, and thank you for making it. And it reminds me of the issues in the recent discussions surrounding upright MRIs and upright scanning. Um, do you have thoughts on um, you know, whether upright scanning is more helpful um, than... Um, you know, a, a laying down MRI. I know in my own case, a laying down MRI was read as normal, but the same institution read my hip, you know, told me it was normal when it showed a synovial herniation pit and told me I didn't have a tethered cord when Dr. Petra Klinga, who's one of the top experts in this, pointed it out to me on the screen that it was very prominent. So I'm not sure what they were seeing or what they weren't seeing, but when I was able to get upright scanning, um, the people doing the scan were taken aback and were, were were very alarmed at the degree to which my neck moves. I've been described as an owl, um, and it, it really is kind of shocking how far my neck can go back. It's scary even to me, and I try to, um, you know, not lean into that laxity anymore. But um, you know, this has come up. I actually just saw a news on the, a piece on the nightly news about this. 
about upright MRIs last night. And so I wondered if, if you had thoughts, if, is there access to upright imaging in your area? And do you find that that gives an advantage in spotting some of these conditions? I'm going to have to plead ignorance here. Um, I'm a little bit more of a newbie to this field. Um, I do think that various modalities to assess uh, cervical or craniocervical mobility, flexion extension MRI, rotational MRI, upright MRI, you know, I think all of those have their place. Do I know exactly which ones are appropriate or which ones should be employed? I'm going to have to plead ignorance. Um, You know, eventually I will be able to uh, learn this and hopefully be as smart as other humans on this, but, uh, but uh, I'm going to have to punt. No, understood. (laughs) Understood. And I think it's a new and emerging issue, you know, like you were talking about in 2006, having that experience with MCAS and if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was only named as a condition in 2003. And so it takes a long time before things are discovered for them to percolate out into the world, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. There are all- I think you know, as we, as we get more experience with it um, and it's discussed more, we'll, we'll have a better sense mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of what is more appropriate. And I, and I think as well, Um, hopefully there will be better medical literature, better research done so that we, again, can have uh, a better sense of what really works um, from an evidence-based standpoint. Mm -hmm. So there also appears to be a connection between hypermobility and POTS, um, and that's been studied to some extent. What have you observed about the relationship between hypermobility and POTS in your practice? So um, I've published two studies in this in this field. The first one was, um, I think in 2017, was our original demographic study in which we looked at over 700 patients. And 23%, as I recall, 22, 23% of patients had uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and another 35-ish percent had um, you know, joint hypermobility. I mean, at that time, the new 2017 diagnostic criteria had not come out. So, you know, they they probably had some aspect of hypermobility spectrum disorder, most likely. Um, but I published another study a couple of years ago, one to two years ago, that showed that as many as 61% of patients who had specifically a 40 or more beat increase. So I I was very strict with my diagnostic criteria, but uh, who had a 40 beat or more increase in their heart rate on a 10 minute stand, uh, 61% had joint hypermobility in one way, shape or form. Tends to be more patients with hypermobility spectrum disorder as opposed to uh, HEDS or or hypermobile EDS. Um, But, um, but that's pretty much what we see. Um, in, in my approach to these patients, the most important thing that I say to them is that they need to connect with a physical therapist to teach them how to protect and stabilize their joints. Um, because uh, the connective tissues that are supposed to act as the guardrails, if you will, to uh, limit the range of motion don't work. And so by taking their joints past the normal range of motion um, early on where it doesn't hurt and then over time it does, uh, is damaging the joint. 
And so we do not want these patients to be showing up with arthritis in their 30s. So uh, I, I, I request that they learn uh, how to protect and stabilize their joints. Um, and there, there are multiple modalities to do that uh, from a physical therapy standpoint. Uh, and, um, and then the, the other thing in, uh, that I do is for my patients who have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, is I will look uh, every few years for evidence of aortic root dilation or dilation of the attachment of the aorta um, to the left ventricle, as well as mitral valve prolapse to see if there's anything that needs to be uh, watched for. There's a small but present uh, incidence of uh, aortic root dilation specifically in patients with HEDS. Um, there are a couple of good studies out of Cincinnati Children's Hospital or Cincinnati Children's Medical Center that suggest that the incidence of um, aortic root dilation in children is really low, like less than 5%. Um, but then there are other data in adults that suggest that uh, over time, uh, those numbers do go up. I haven't seen a lot of data with regard to whether the patients with HEDS end up needing surgery to repair or to prevent um, uh, aortic rupture, unlike patients with, say, for example, vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or Loewy-Dietz syndrome. Interesting. Those are a lot of really interesting insights on the differences of these conditions that all have seem to have a lot in common, but have their own features that um, really need to be individually addressed. So switching gears a little bit, um, many patients with POTS know that their symptoms seem to worsen with temperature variances and or air pressure changes. Have you yeah. noticed that in your practice? And Absolutely. And what kind Absolutely. of observations or I guess what kind of trends are you seeing? So a couple things. Um, I've seen patients where, you know, if a, if, a, if a storm system or if there's a change in barometric pressure, like a significant change in barometric pressure that comes through, yeah, that, that flares their POTS symptoms. But the other thing that we also see is just sort of the typical seasonality changes. So a lot of patients are heat intolerant specifically, uh, with a smaller percentage of patients being cold intolerant. Um, for and, and when I say heat intolerance, that means when it's when it's hot, um, uh, hot room, hot shower, hot outside, their pot symptoms get worse. Um, as I always tell the the patients and parents, classic story: it's winter time, it's snowing out. Pot's patient is running around outside in shorts, t-shirt, and flip flops, and the parents are like, "What the heck are you doing?" And their and the kid is like, "I feel great." <laughs> um, and so, um, you know. What I recommend is the use of the cooling vest that we talked about before uh, to help patients uh, deal with, uh, you know, deal with the, uh, the heat issues. Um, from a cold intolerance standpoint, uh, interestingly, the, uh, the compression stockings that we discussed before can be helpful. Um, and uh, I've, I literally have had patients choose their college because of where it's located, i.e. if they have cold intolerance, I've had patients go south. Um, if they have uh, heat intolerance, I've had patients go north. just is what it is. 
Um, as far as the as far as the barometric or weather changes, that's a tough one. I I, I have seen though in patients who have been exercising. Um, uh, you know, consistently, and, and they get to about um, month four, five, six or so of the modified uh, Levine protocol, or what I refer to as the, the Dallas protocol. Um, I find that they're a lot more tolerant. They have a lot more reserve. They, they don't get blown away by an intercurrent viral infection or weather changes or stress um, uh, nearly as much. Um, they're, they're able to tolerate things and, the, and their symptoms kind of come down. So that, that can be something that can help to um, offset, um, uh, in some patients at least, uh, the, uh, the concerns with barometric pressure changes. That's really interesting. And is the Dallas protocol and or the Levine protocol available online? So the answer is yes. Um, okay. So the... Uh, a, a, a little story. Um, Dr. Benjamin Levine, which a number of people have probably heard of before, is an exercise physiologist at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. Um, I had an adolescent patient a number of years back who was not responding to any therapy that I gave her. And she and her mom found out that Dr. Levine and her and his team were doing research on this exercise protocol. She asked, what do you think about getting into it? I'm like, go for it. Long story short, my patient was part of the study, and um, I asked uh, I asked Dr. Levine for a copy of his protocol, uh, which he kindly gave me, and I gave it to my patients. And I found that for my patients, um, it was not exactly appropriate. It was a little bit hard to interpret, and uh, there was just some issues that were not adolescent specific. So um, I sat down with one of our physical therapists, and we rewrote it and made it hopefully easier to understand, easier to utilize. And I've always referred to it not as the Levine protocol, but as the Dallas protocol. Um, And so uh, we called it the modified Dallas protocol. Um, And it can be found, it's hosted on the Dysautonomia International website. If you do a search for uh, CHOP, C-H-O-P, POTS, Dallas, just those three words, you'll find it. That is a fascinating history and a great resource. And we'll add the link to that in the episode notes for this episode if people want to check that out and investigate further. Um, I think the one thing I think the one thing that people need to recognize though is that if they are an adult and want to use it, um, again, recognize that it was at least the heart rate ranges were written specifically for adolescents and young adults. So uh, you can still use it, but I would, instead of using the heart rate targets, I would use the ratings of perceived exertion or RPE um, as your, uh, as your, um, uh, as your targets. That's a great reminder. And um, again, I know it's tough because in a lot of areas, there are not um, really any providers educated about EDS, POTS, really any number of things we discussed today. But um, if at all possible, you know, it's great if people can take, you know, a resource like this, take it to their physical therapist, hopefully someone either with a baseline level knowledge or the ability to want to learn. Um, And with telemedicine, there's some opportunities, you know, we've interviewed some great PTs, some of whom themselves have hypermobility in some of these conditions and um, an OT recently. Um, So there was Emily Rich, Megan Barker, um, 
I'm uh, Lillian Holm. I know I'm probably forgetting some. Um, the the heat is definitely getting to me today, but um, yeah, it's a great reminder to, if at all possible, try to work with someone um, ed- educated in these areas because um, a lot of us need um, quite a bit of modification from whatever kind of treatment protocol there may be. And especially with a history of joint hypermobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, if you're going to exercise, I don't want you hurting yourself um, doing these exercises, not recognizing that you're taking the joints past the normal range of motion. So definitely working with a physical therapist who is familiar with managing uh, hypermobile joints um, is uh, is really important. I think the other thing too that that from a motivational standpoint, I mean, yes, you can do the Dallas protocol at home. I mean, it's it's not super difficult or at a gym, but having a PT in in some ways to whom you're responsible, <laughs> you know, to whom that you're like, oh, geez, I got to do this thing. Otherwise, this PT is going to be mad at me. Um, it, it's kind of a motivational thing, too, that, that helps you uh, make sure that you put it in your schedule, put it on your calendar, make sure it gets done. Definitely. Um, and hopefully someone that can be there to support you um, in the times that are tough and when you're struggling, um, because mm-hmm. those can be really demoralizing when you're, it feels some, a lot of times, um, and I've heard this from a lot of people, it can really feel like, you know, it's usually the, the saying is two steps forward, one step step back, but I, I feel like that's kind of inverted. Sometimes it feels like one step forward and two plus, 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 question mark, dot, 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 steps back. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's, it can definitely be a real roller coaster. <laughs> And I, and you know, the first two, three months, especially of, of doing exercise, if you've not done exercise previously, mm-hmm. um, it can be tough and, and it can make you feel worse. Uh, in my experience, this is anecdotal, but in, in my experience, I find that the patients, at least from, from an adolescent standpoint, the patients who were athletes previously, mm-hmm. who enjoy exercise, who, who enjoyed being on a team who, who, who appreciated the ability to put the time aside to practice, to exercise, that kind of thing, they tended to do better than those patients who hadn't exercised on a routine basis. Again, that's anecdotal that I don't have good data for that, but it's just sort of something I noticed. Um, and so that can be, you know, that can be harder uh, for, for those folks who've not exercised before. It's, it's a, it's a real life change. That's a great point. And going back to what we talked about earlier and the specific challenges with children, um, I'm really hopeful. And, and this is getting me thinking more about the importance of inclusive athletic activity for, um, young students with, and just young people and everyone with hypermobility, but, Um, You know, so many of the sport options in high school are highly competitive, highly impact on joints. Um, You know, think of running, cross country, um, you know, basketball, a lot of that, you know, and certainly there are hypermobile people who are excellent at all of those things and, you know, are able to manage um, their symptoms because it is such a a big spectrum. But um, hopefully with more education and more awareness can come more opportunities for more inclusive types of physical activity and more understanding because as it stands now, um, you know, parents and and students are often in the very uncomfortable position of having to ask for accommodation and they might get teased at school if they, Mm -hmm. you know, have certain limitations. And that's really unfortunate because 
like you said, if you can foster that sense of team camaraderie and, sure. and develop a sense that exercise can be your friend from a young age, um, it, it seems clear that, you know, at least in, in a good portion of cases that can be helpful. But again, a lot of um, sporting and, and different activities are really not accessible and, and can be really kind of a source of shame and, and pain for people with these conditions. I think I think it's a it's a it's a tough situation for the schools to be in though you know they have a limited budget mm-hmm. they have limited personnel mm-hmm. who can um, who can do this Definitely. a lot of sports are in 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 high school so from middle school to high school are considered uh, entry points for potential scholarships for you know Division one or Division two schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is, a, and of course, just the whole, as you know, the whole big intra-school rivalry thing, all that other, all that other fun stuff. Um, and so it's hard to then say outside of PE, you know, what are we going to be doing? Are we going to be doing, are we going to have intramural sports that are not as competitive or, um, would it end up having to be something that is not done from a school-based standpoint, but something more from a community-based mm-hmm. standpoint, mm-hmm. right? And and I just, uh, again, you know, with, with the concept of limited budgets and, 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 and that kind of deal, I, I, I don't know how that gets done. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a huge challenge, and I completely agree. I, I feel for schools, and I think they're in a tough position, although I, I certainly have seen some instances, um, you know, including – in litigation type context where, and, you know, not to call anyone out by name, but I've seen some instances where schools have been really, and, and even physicians like really, um, hesitant is the word coming to mind, but resistant feels like a better word to providing basic accommodations to students that, that, seems self-evident. Um, there's one from a few years back that was particularly disturbing to me when I read it, um, a federal court decision. And um, it just, I, about the facts of the case, not the decision itself. I don't even remember what the decision was, but just kind of hearing the back and forth and kind of sensing the lack of um, a robust knowledge about these conditions. Um, so it, it certainly is a challenge. Um, but hopefully with awareness increasing, there'll be more opportunities. And I agree. I, I don't think this should all be on the schools, you know, except for the kind of accommodation they really have to provide under the ADA. I I think they're subject to the ADA. I need to check that. Um, but I I think having community programs, um, to give options to, to children, um, you know, just maybe some kind of lower impact group exercise that's not as, um, competitive or even competitive type um, endeavors that just may not be as either joint impactful or triggering a POTS episode or whatever the individual's issue may be. But I've got a long way to go in a lot of <laughs> respects. Yeah, I think mean, sports notwithstanding, I mean, to, to your prior point, um, as far as getting accommodations in school, I've, I, I can't tell you the number of providers with whom I've interacted in schools who are unwilling mm-hmm. to uh, recognize that these kids actually have a disability and under the ADA or the IDEA um, uh, qualify for an individualized education plan or a 504 plan. Um, and uh, in fact, 
um, it's, you know, some, some programs are like, unless there's loss of limb, vision, or blood, you know, you're going to school no matter what. And, and that, that gets to be really difficult for, uh, for these kids, for the families. Um, it is interesting. A lot of people have noted that, um, from a pediatric standpoint, um, kids with POTS are often, not always, but often high achieving either academically, athletically, or both. And, you know, whereas a lot of kids are just sort of like, eh, with school, these kids really want to be in school for two reasons. One, because they do well at it. And two, they want to be in school because it's a measure of normalcy, right? It, it allows them to be with their friends. It allows them to feel like they are normal. And, and that's one of the biggest issues within adolescence is, is trying not to stand out, trying to be as part of the group, you know, uh, as, as possible to a point. I mean, you, you, you want to, you want to stand out and, and do good things, but you don't want to stand out and be, um, a, a point of derision or, or, um, uh, you know, being made fun of or whatnot. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, that desire to feel normal and fit in is, is very compelling and, um, yeah, whatever we can do to help kids get there is really important. So I, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, and, and I've had schools push back on this too, you know, despite the fact that by law they're required to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I have had to get involved, you know, as in, you know, not only writing letters, but being on phone calls and saying, you guys are dropping the ball. You need to do this. That's great. Um, and, um, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of sad that, that people, um, are not willing to, uh, to give these kids uh, a little bit of a boost. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, many physicians are not even aware of what POTS is, let alone how debilitating it can be. It, it sounds like you've heard from people who do just don't recognize its existence and, um, you know, ascribe it to being of a mental source in some way. Um, but, but that's confusing to me. Like, d- do people not recognize the validity of tilt tests? Do they not understand what's going on there? Um, and so what do you think is, why do you think there is such a lack of awareness and what do you think are the best ways to help educate providers, um, you know, sort of top down major initiatives, um, you know, individual advocacy, I guess you have thoughts on this whole matter. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I think certainly there it's multi-pronged. Um, there are a lot of groups that are trying to, uh, get that information out there. Uh, a lot of patient advocacy groups that are trying to do that. Um, I think getting it into the medical literature. Um, uh, I think um, inviting providers to uh, come to conferences um, that talk about this. Um, I actually gave a talk at the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics National Conference both last year and the year before on POTS as well. So it, it's we're slowly getting there. Um, I, uh, you know, it's it, it's it's going to be a slow process. I think. Um, just like you were talking about with multiple sclerosis, it will be probably better accepted, better understood, better um, realized when we have a biomarker, mm-hmm. uh, when we have some sort of a uh, ability to 
have a test of sorts that says, oh, that's POTS. Although um, is, is the tilt table test, I mean, the tilt table, like the, that's kind of where I don't understand because certainly does anyone believe that one can fake a tilt table test? No, you know, I, no, 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 no. Isn't but, that kind of objective but, evidence in itself? Yes, but no. Okay. I mean, yes, yes, you get a tachycardic response, mm-hmm. but, but we um, don't know why. Where, yeah. Well, where do you draw the line, right? Mm-hmm. Is it forty? Is it thirty-five? Mm-hmm. Is it thirty? Is it twenty-five? You know, in in talking with Dr. Grubb um, a couple of years ago about the whole concept of uh, looking at heart rate response, he said back in the day, you know, when when people were sitting around and discussing this, they said, well, this is seems to be some aspect of objective evidence. So let's um, maybe we can use maybe we can use this. But it's, uh, you know, one of the problems, for example, one of the problems for, uh, with using heart rate is there's what's called diurnal variation, which means that the heart rate response is greater in the morning than in the afternoon, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can have a patient potentially have a normal 10-minute standing test or even a, a normal uh, tilt table test in the afternoon, but be wildly abnormal in the morning. Interesting. Yeah, so so it, it's it's not it's not as reliable as we think. That's very interesting, and thanks for sharing that. And that makes me think of what you said earlier about the you know potentially elevating the head of the bed as one potential method of um, addressing some of the issues with the um, heart and blood vessel function during sleep. But but that's so interesting, and it's a great point, and it's a reminder for people out there. You know, I, I've heard of similar struggles with mast cell with the way I think the treatment protocol or the diagnosis protocol, I'm sorry, is that you're supposed to get your levels checked within like 30 minutes of an episode. And, you know, when you're having a severe mast cell reaction, just getting to help and the wait times at a urgent care, you know, it can be really difficult to get, you know, an accurate diagnosis. So just because yeah, what, it sounds, what it sounds like you're describing is uh, getting a uh, post-flare triptase level. Yes. Um, and that's supposed to be measured, I believe, within four hours of a of Oh, a, that long. Okay. Flare. But the problem is, the problem is only maybe 10 or 15% of patients who have MCAS bump their triptase. Mm-hmm. So it's probably, so, you know, really um, there, there are other tests, methylhistamine, prostaglandin, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and other, um, you know, and other tests that are, that are looked at in the blood and in the urine, um, that may catch, um, these tests or, or may catch, uh, the diagnosis, uh, more completely. And truth be told, there are a bunch of people that sit there and go, you know what, these tests, are, a, a lot of these labs are not set up for these tests. Let's just treat them presumptively and see what happens. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Um, well, we've covered a ton of ground today, and I thank you so much. I've, I know I've learned so much, um, and your your knowledge base is really astounding, and your caring and compassion from your patient for your for your patients really comes through. Um, for one last question, what do you think are the best resources for credible information about POTS? We've already talked about um, Dysautonomia International, um, this uh, Dallas protocol. Are there other resources out there that you have found particularly helpful and, and are particularly patient friendly? Hmm. There's a good question. Short answer, um, can't think of any. I think 
you know, I used to, I, I, uh, back in the day, I mean, Dynet, D-I-N-E-T dot O-R-G, which is the Dysautonomy Information Network, and Dynakids, D-Y-N-A-K-I-D-S, I believe, dot O-R-G, a couple of, um, couple of websites that I would refer my patients to besides Dysautonomy International. Um, I, I, I really have found that, that Dysautonomy International has worked hard to maintain a, uh, an extensive, um, uh, an, an extensive website full of uh, up-to-date information. Beyond that, um, I'm not I'm not really not really familiar with uh, with a lot of kind of patient-oriented um, sources for the for this data. Understandable. Uh, that makes sense. Um, and I, I think there are a few more organizations that I've been looking into that I'm looking into. Um, uh, hopefully having some interviews lined up soon. So hopefully more on that um, to come. But Dr. Boris, thank you so much for joining us today and for all of your incredible work for patients with POTS, EDS, hypermobility conditions, and more. It's so much appreciated. Thanks so much, Carrie. It's been uh, great talking with you and I appreciate the invitation. Uh, thank you. Um, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Again, thank you to Dr. Boris for joining us today. And thank you to all of you for listening. As always, feel free to email us and you can follow us on Twitter at HypermobilityHH and Instagram at HypermobilityHHgram. See you next time. Bye.